Hey guys, that was just incredible tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, how many more did you guys have to do? Five more? All right. Well, after, this, after I preach, y'all come back and do your thing, man. Everybody that wants that, say amen. amen. All right. Okay, uh, I'm trusting that you have your notes uh, that as you came in tonight. Uh, you'll remember that last night we began looking at a passage from 1 Kings chapter 18. You can be turning there if you'd like to. And, and what we saw was actually happening in 1 Kings chapter 18 is God was bringing things to a head in Israel. Uh, there was a major showdown that was happening between Elijah the prophet of God, and Ahab, the king of Israel. And to really get the complexion of what was actually going on in Israel at this time, it was important to understand, and we, we looked at this last night, but it was important to understand that this guy Ahab, the king of Israel, this is a guy that was a major piece of work. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel that were before him. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament and the history of Israel's kings back in the day, but to suffice it to, to say that the Lord God of Israel had been provoked a lot before it ever got to Ahab. And you also need to understand that with this guy Ahab, that on the other side of this thing, Elijah, Elijah was a guy that was not known for you know, mincing his words. This was a guy that definitely wasn't a loose cannon, but let me assure you, when God gave Elijah the words that he wanted to have spoken, Elijah just definitely took those words and put them waist high right across the plate, regardless of who the audience was. A great case in point is in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Elijah gets up in Ahab's stuff and he says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. In other words, what Elijah was saying to him is, yeah, dude, I get it, man. You might be the king. You call the shots in Israel. But let me tell you a shot that I'm going to call because of your wickedness. And he looks at him and he says, it ain't going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And it was a bold, bold statement. And the way the story shakes out, is by the time these two guys, Ahab and Elijah, by the time they see each other again, three and a half years has passed, and in that period of time, y'all, there was not a drop, not a single drop of dew, not a single drop of moisture that has hit the ground during that entire three and a half year period. And as we saw last night, things had gotten to a critical point in Israel. 
There are no water, there's no water in the lakes, there's no water in the streams, there's no pools of water anywhere, and it had led to a, a bunch of crises in, in the nation of Israel. We saw there was a physical crisis, an economic crisis, a political crisis, a moral crisis, and a spiritual crisis. And as we noted last night, not unlike the times in which you and I live in our own country. And when we get to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17, Ahab crosses paths with Elijah. And Ahab says, well, my, 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 if it isn't the big troublemaker in Israel... And in verse 18, Elijah responds saying, you know what, pal, you took the words right out of my mouth. If it ain't the big troublemaker in Israel. And Elijah just nails this dude to the wall saying, listen, pal, you are the one that has caused the judgment of God to come upon this nation because you have not followed the word of God, but you have rather followed, you followed Balaam and you've led the people of Israel to follow him. And you'll remember that Baal was the sun god. He was the god of fire. And the worship of him included all kinds of sexual immorality, orgiistic debauchery. It was just crazy. And in verse 19, Elijah calls for a showdown. And he says, listen, I, I know that your wife Jezebel is the one that's funding these 450 prophets of Baal and these 400 prophets of, of the grove. So listen, go get Go get all 850 of them and send word out to the people of Israel to gather at Mount Carmel and let's have this showdown right now once and for all. And verse 20 says that the king did just that. And when everybody gets there, when all the children of Israel have gathered at Mount Carmel, Elijah walks up to the platform with all the 850 prophets of Baal behind him, and he looks out at all of the children of Israel that had gathered there in that place, and he looks out at them and he says, listen, y'all, this, this half Baal, half God stuff has got to stop. He says, you're living in, or trying to live in two contrary worlds, and it's time that you pick and choose which world you're going to be living in, And because God has sent me to come before you and tell you that he has had enough. And he says, if the Lord be God... In other words, Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, if he's God, then go for him, man. Adjust your lifestyle and follow him. But, he says, if you are so demented to think that Baal is actually God and not just your sorry excuse for gratifying yourself sexually, then sell yourself out to him. But God wanted me to come before you, he says, and let you know 
that he wants you to go one way or the other. Much like Jesus says, I would that you lay out of sins. I would that you were either hot or cold. But this lukewarm stuff can't handle it. Now, I, I, I get it. <laughs> that, you know, I'm, I'm old and I may sound like a crusty, crotchety old codger. But I think, I think that Elijah's message is the message that needs to be preached to the 21st century church. And all three of us agree with that. And to be honest with you, y'all, I, I, I don't think that 21st century Christians who live in the middle between the God of the Bible and the God of the world, I don't think that Christians in our day like this message any more than the people did in Elijah's day. And Elijah says his piece in verse 21, and the people have absolutely no response, and Elijah tells them that they're they're halted. And you're stuck in the middle between two contrary worlds. And so in verses 23 and 24, Elijah says, okay, okay, guys, it's time for a little object lesson. Let's, let's just go for this, man. Let's settle this thing once and for all. He says, okay, so you, you 850 prophets, you go ahead and do your thing, and you come over to this altar that is reserved for Baal, and, and, and you prepare the sacrifice on that altar, prepare, prepare a sacrifice of a bullock, and, and since Baal is the god of fire, then, and of course, you won't need to put any fire under it, so don't put any fire there. Okay, you serve the god of fire. And Elijah says, and I'll come over here, and I'll come to this altar that is reserved for Jehovah, this altar that has been broken down for lack of use, and I'll repair that thing, and we'll put the bullock on that altar, and let's don't put any fire under this one either. And what he says is the God that consumes the sacrifice by answering with fire let him be the God in Israel and let's follow him with everything that we've got and let's put away all of this double-mindedness and this dual worship. And the people do have a response to that. The end of verse 24, they say, we like it. Let's do it. And because... The situation in Israel then is so unbelievably like the situation in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. To bring this into our world and to make this all practical for us, I challenged you last night to ask three questions of this passage. The first question we asked is where? Where is the fire of God, on whose life, on, on what home, on, on what church? And we saw that to actually answer that question, we need to ask a second question, and that question is what? What is 
the fire of God, and we can't take the time that we did last night to prove this, but very simply and very consistently throughout the scripture, the fire of God is representative of two things. First of all, it is representative of his presence, and then secondly, it is representative of his power. And when you begin to understand what the fire of God is, it brings that first question to where it is a little closer because now we've all got to ask ourselves, where is the presence and power of God on my life? And where is the presence and power of God on my church? Which leads to a third question, and that is how? How do we get the fire of God? And because this is what actually happens in the story, I mean, what we're going to see is the fire of God does come down. In verse 30, Elijah gathers the people. In verse 38, it says, then the fire of the Lord Fell. And so we've sought to use this passage to show us biblical steps for spiritual victory, or another way we could say it is biblical steps for living with the, the presence and power of God's fire upon our lives. And the first step we gleaned from this passage is that we must first repair the altar that is broken down. Would you look at verse 30 again? And Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And for us 21st century folk, a very powerful, a very practical principle that I believe we all need to hear is that if we really want to live with the fire of God's presence and the fire of God's power on our life, just like Elijah was talking about and just like Elijah did, we need to repair the altar in our life and in our church that has been broken down from lack of use. And again, we don't have time to recreate everything that we said last night, but what we saw last night is that the altar in the Old Testament found its fulfillment in Christ. So there's some things that we can learn from that Old Testament altar that have very significant spiritual and practical application to us. And we saw last night that letter A, the altar is the place where daily contrition is manifest, and if that word contrition is throwing you at all, just hear brokenness, humility, surrender, dependence, letter B. The altar is the place where daily connection is maximized. Letter C, the altar is the place where daily confession is made. And then letter D, the altar is the place where daily communion is maintained. And those four words, man, they pack a huge wallop when it comes to this thing of us living our lives with the presence and the power of God on them. And so first of all, before the fire of God is going to fall on our life, and again, what I'm trying to put before us is, man, 
we're going to leave this place midday on Saturday. And I think it would be the most awesome thing in all of the world if we all left this place with the presence and power of God on our lives. Amen, y'all? Man, I hope that that's what's in your heart. <laughs> and, and then notice the second thing. We must pay the price of sacrifice. We must pay the price uh, of sacrifice. Would you look with me at verse 33? It says, and, and he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt, watch this now, this is a key word, sacrifice, and on the wood. Okay, now I want you to work with me right now, okay? Now if I told you to look at verse 33, and I were to ask you, what was the sacrifice? Okay, the obvious answer is the bullock, right? And sure, the bullock was the sacrifice, but if you'll look at the verse a little closer and keep it in the context of the whole story, you'll see that the real sacrifice, the, the sacrifice that God really wanted, it's in verse 33 for sure, but listen, it isn't the bullock. And this makes the point that's repeated throughout the word of God, and that's this, that most usually what we think is the sacrifice isn't really the sacrifice at all. What we think is the sacrifice is simply that which provides the opportunity for us to bring to God the sacrifice that he is really looking for. Can somebody hear that? You know what the real sacrifice was in verse 33? Let me give you a clue by, by reminding you of this. What was it that was the most precious commodity the people had in their possession after three and a half years of not a single drop of dew or rain? It was water, man. And yet, you know what happens here? God prompts the man of God to ask the people for water, and not just a little bit of it, y'all, but four barrels full. Listen, do you understand what would have had to happen to get that amount of water? It would have sent all of the people back to their supply and they would have had to have been willing to sacrifice. This is really deep, what I'm about to say. Do you understand, y'all, that a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice until it's a sacrifice? <laughs> You see, you pay good money to get little <laughs> quips like that, buddy. But, but for real, listen, to offer the bullock on the altar was a sacrifice that everyone agreed with and was more than willing to make because it didn't cost them anything. Sacrifice, 
bullock, sure, man. But biblically, a sacrifice that doesn't cost you something isn't really a sacrifice. You see, it's, uh, it's easy for us to talk corporately and, and generally and ambiguously about sacrifice in our churches. I mean, it's great when the pastor says, you know, we need a bullock to sacrifice. And, you know, to be honest with you, most Christians don't have a problem when the sacrifice has to do with the church. Just imagine that at the beginning of the year, uh, one of your, in my estimation, great pastors of the churches that are represented here, what if your your pastor comes before the church and he says, folks, listen, uh, we believe we have heard from God and as pastors, what we've decided is that this is going to be a year of sacrifice. Amen. And all the people, oh, amen. And so this year, we're not going to spend any of the church budget on us. We're not going to spend any money on feeding Christians, whether it be physical food or spiritual food. We're not going to, we're not going to buy any curriculum this year. When we get together, we're not going to have any snacks. We're not going to have any food at our gatherings. We're not going to spend any of our money entertaining Christians. We've decided and God has led us as pastors to take all of that money and use it for missions. And everybody says, amen, awesome. But suppose the pastor says, you know, folks, we believe that we have heard from God in our fellowship, and we believe that God is calling on the people of our church, first of all, for all of us to adjust our lifestyles. And so for the next 12 months, what we're asking you is don't go on vacation. Uh, Don't go out to eat. Don't spend any money this year on entertainment or anything that caters exclusively to your family. And listen, let's all of us in the church, let's take the money that we've been spending on those kinds of things, and man, let's invest it in his kingdom. Now listen, y'all, that would be a sacrifice. And in this story, when the man of God asked for four barrels of water, that was different than asking for the bullock. Because now it's not just a generic sacrifice, because now what had to happen is everybody had to tap into their own supply. And bless their hearts. They did it, man. They fill four barrels full of water. And you know what Elijah has the audacity to do with it? (laughs) He takes that precious substance that in the midst of this unbelievable drought represented life to them. Don't miss that. (laughs) And he pours out these four barrels upon the altar that had been repaired. And you look at that and go, 
wow. But listen, that ain't not. You know what happened next? Would you look at verse 34? The first part of the verse says, and he said, do it the second time. <laughs> what? Dude, are you kidding me? And I'm sure that's what they were thinking and that's what they were saying, man. But do you understand? To do this a, a second time to, and get four more barrels of water would have so depleted their supply that it would have brought them all to a place to where they were dangerously at a low level. And listen, to go get that water wouldn't just be a sacrifice now. It would become faith. I think sometimes we just pass over the fact that the book of Hebrews tells us something monumental about how God thinks and about how he prioritizes things. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, listen to this, it is, would you say it? It is impossible <laughs> to please God. And I assure you, listen, y'all, until the sacrifice that we offer is pleasing to the Lord, it's going to be impossible for us to experience the fire of God on our lives. And I got to tell you, man, as a human, I can tell you, my brothers and sisters, I know that I desperately want the presence and power of God on my life as long as it doesn't require personal sacrifice. And I desperately want it, as long as it doesn't require faith. But the fact of the matter is, as I've already stated, a sacrifice that isn't a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice, and it isn't faith. And so again, man, bless their hearts. The last part of verse 34 says, they all go back to their supply. They empty out their canteens and their bottles of water, and they do it a second time. And once again, when they bring it to Elijah and they fill these four barrels full, he has the audacity to pour it out all over the altar. And then... Do you know what he has the audacity to tell the people at the end of verse, or the middle of verse 34? Do it the third time. And listen, now it doesn't just mean sacrifice. And now it doesn't just mean faith. Now it means death. Because you see, to this point, what had happened is the people were giving out of their supply. But to do it yet again, they wouldn't now be giving out of their supply. This time they would have to give all of their supply. Okay, now let's just stop for a second here and let me ask you something. Is there anybody here that actually thinks that God needed the people's water. I, I mean, the God that sends fire can also send the rain. 
Isaiah 40, 12 says that he holds the entire water on the face of this planet in the palm of his hand. So let me assure you, God didn't need their water. And so the question we've got to ask is, well, why did he, why did he ask him for it? What, what's, what's the point? Okay, listen very carefully. He wanted the water because when he knew he had their water supply on the altar, he knew he had them on the altar. And that's what he wanted all along. You remember their hearts were divided. They were double-minded. And what God wanted was the absolute surrender of themselves to him. And, and, and listen, y'all, the, the main takeaway that I think we need to get into our lives from this section is, listen, before the fire of God falls on our lives, God's going to want to make sure that there's no double-mindedness, there's no divided allegiance in our hearts, but there's nothing but absolute surrender to him. In other words, he's going to want to make sure that he has us, not a part of us, but all of us on the altar. And if you'll allow me, I'm going I'm to ask you a question that as I've been preparing for this that I've had to ask myself, and the question is this, what is it in your life then that when it is poured out as a sacrifice on the altar, it's going to communicate to God that he has you, all of you on that altar, I, I really don't know what it might be for you. I, I would imagine that it might be different for all of us. Maybe, maybe for some of us it's money. Maybe for some of us it's a job or a house or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a, a habit or a hobby. I don't know. And again, it, it's, not that, it's not that God needs any of those things, but what he wants what he wants more than any of our stuff, he wants us. Okay, but what is it in your life that when he has that on the altar, he knows he has you on that altar? And again, I would imagine that it would be different for all of us. But you know, I, I do think it's interesting in this story in 1 Kings chapter 18 that there was something specific that God was asking from all of them. And what God was asking for from all of them was for their most precious commodity. And in that culture, in that day, the most precious commodity was what, y'all? It was water, okay? And, and you know what, y'all? Something tells me 
that before the fire of God falls on our lives, it may just be that God is asking those of us in this culture, in our day, he might be asking for the most precious commodity to us. And you know what that is? Our time. And the truth is, y'all, to be what God wants us to be, <laughs> it takes time. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're never going to be who God wants us to be. Reading a verse out of the daily bread and praying, now I lay me down to sleep prayers, y'all. <laughs> it takes time. And to do what God has called us to do, y'all, as individuals and as his body. And listen, any way you slice it, it takes the most precious commodity in the 21st century. It takes our time. I, I think you figured this out. It takes time to make disciples. It takes time to develop the relationships with the people in our church so that we can carry out the one another commands. It takes time for us to use our gifts and talents and abilities and our passion and, and, and use those to serve others in the body of Christ. It just takes a bunch of time. And, and so what is it going to take for the fire of God to actually fall upon our lives? Number one, we must repair the, the altar that is broken down. Number two, we must pay the price of sacrifice, and then thirdly, we, we must be intimately connected to God in prayer. We must be intimately connected to God in prayer. And I want you to watch what happens here immediately after the people brought the sacrifice of water. Verse 36 says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Okay, and he, he's going to pray. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And again, Elijah prays. And I got to tell you, one of the things that just surprises me about his prayer is the length of it. Because Listen, after all of the shenanigans that the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the groves have been going through, man, I, I just got to tell you, I, I think I might be just a little intimidated by that. Would you look at verse 25? Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal. Listen, from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. I mean, they're flailing on the altar, man. It'd be a great skit. 
And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. I love Elijah, buddy. Hey, go ahead, cry loud. For he's a God, either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey of perventure, you know, perventure he sleepeth. Yeah, he's probably busy. That's why he's not listening to you. Maybe you better wake him up. And they cried aloud and check it out. They cut themselves after the manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Oh my, look at... A little Julia Child's action there. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of that evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Okay, so Elijah has been watching this for about 12 hours. Okay. And then Elijah walks up, and he prays 63 words. <laughs> 63 words. And I mean, listen, this is a big deal. I mean, God answering from heaven with enough fire to consume a sacrifice that is laying upon wood that's been doused with 12 barrels of water. Do you understand? This is no small thing here. I don't know what Elijah's thinking about a 63 stinking word prayer. If I'm Elijah, man, I I just know how my brain works. I'm going to be thinking, oh, oh, buddy. Okay, this prayer is going to have to be a doozy. (laughs) Okay, I I know it's got to be at least five minutes. It probably should be 30. But listen, that is not what Elijah thought. And that certainly isn't how he prayed. You know, I, on, on my app, on my phone, I, took, I went to the stopwatch, and I, I timed myself reading the 63 words of this prayer. You know how long it was? A whopping 16.5 seconds. Elijah spent 16 and a half seconds connecting with God and calling on him to answer with fire. But don't miss this now. Though Elijah's prayer was short, it certainly wasn't flippant, and he, he, he certainly wasn't just spitting out some mindless, heartless, and passionateless verbiage. He's not just offering up some nonchalant flare prayer that actually presumed upon God, but he feels no need to pray some long, drawn-out, flowery prayer to get God to hear him or to get God to answer him. And do you know why that was? It was because Elijah was intimately connected to God in prayer. Listen, before he ever starts this 16 and a half second prayer, do you understand that this old boy had spent hours and days and weeks and years alone with God in a cave? And Elijah knew God And God 
knew Elijah because of the intimate connection that they had in prayer. And the fact is, man, these 63 words that we see him pray in this passage, do you understand that they are simply the continuation of a prayer that had begun long before this showdown? And I think the natural tendency when we read a story like this is, you know, to think, well, you know, the reason Elijah could pull off this stuff, man, is, you know, he was a stallion for God, man. You know, he was an extraordinary guy. He's, he's way out of reach for any of us. And so you know what God did? He comes along in the New Testament in James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, to let us know that Elijah was a man who was made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. He faced the same kind of struggles that we faced. He was just an average, ordinary guy. But do you understand this? He was a guy that possessed the fire of God's presence and the fire of God's power on his life. Listen, not because he was anything special, because he wasn't. He was just an ordinary guy, but he was an ordinary guy intimately connected with an extraordinary God. And the connection was made as it always is through prayer. And so I ask you tonight, are you? I mean, do you feel that's, that's where you are in your walk, in your relationship with the Lord? Are you intimately connected with him in prayer? My, my time's all, almost gone. But don't worry, I wasn't planning on browbeating anybody or guilt tripping anybody, you know, with, you know, the whole prayer life thing right now. You know what, y'all? As I was preparing, I didn't need anyone to do that in order for God to speak to me from this passage and from the example of Elijah about the need in my life to be intimately connected to God in prayer. I don't think you need me to pound that tonight. I mean, if you're listening, if you're following this, I, I think the spirit of God that lives in us is, 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 is saying, man, hey, this is where it's at, man. Being intimately connected with, with God in prayer. Could I just ask you, what, what is God saying to you that it's going to take for you to be intimately connected with him in prayer. And, and, you know, maybe we're back to that thing that we were talking about a little earlier. Maybe we're, we're back to this sacrifice of time. And, and then I want you to notice, lastly, the result. Verses 38 and 39. And, and first of all, I want you to look at the first seven words of verse 38 with me. It says, Then... Hello? Then the fire of the Lord fell. Then. When? (laughs) 
When did the fire of God's presence and power fall in a supernatural and extraordinary kind of way? Here it is. When the altar that had been broken down was repaired, when the price of genuine sacrifice had been paid, and when intimate connection was made with God in prayer. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. All 12 barrels full, man. And notice the response of the people in verse 39 when the the fire of God fell. And when all the people saw it, They fell on their faces. And listen, just stop there for a second. You know what it tells me that it might look like when the fire of God falls on our lives personally and when it falls on our churches corporately? It kind of sounds like the most comfortable position that we'll find ourselves in before God is on our face. Can you imagine what it would be if the chief characteristic of Midtown Baptist Temple and Harvest Baptist of Blue Springs, Harvest Baptist of Iola, Living Faith Fellowship of Lee's Summit, can you imagine if the chief characteristic and the testimony of your churches was Man, that's a place where the people are more comfortable on their face before God than they are sitting in the pew. Look at the end of verse 39. And they, okay, that's all the people, not just a select few. And they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Do you remember how Elijah challenged the people back in verse 21? He came out and he said, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal be God, follow him. And listen, now they got it. No more double-mindedness. But would you notice? The double declaration the Lord he is the God the Lord he is the God and I ask you tonight is that what your spirit is saying Oh, that this would be the message not just from our lips, y'all, but from our life. No more double-mindedness. No more divided allegiance. No more dual worship. The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. He and he alone. In our homes, in our churches, in our thoughts, in our motives, in our actions, in our reactions, at work, at school, 
in the gym because the fire of God has fallen upon our lives.